Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is X Job Downloaded. <laughs> now, where's the, now today I'm I'm interviewing. <laughs> now, now you understand the significance of that. Um, today I'm interviewing Simon Rogers. Now Simon is a former police officer with Warwickshire Police. He's uh, an advisor to the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh um, and also runs Turret Training Limited. Good morning. Hello. Good morning, Paul. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. So do you like the introduction? Yeah, it was okay. I've never had an introduction like that, so that'll go with me fine. It's funny because our military... um, Friends who I interview, they don't understand the significance of the uh, of that part. So, um, but you wait to the end. There's another bit at the end of it. Um, so, where did it all begin for Simon? And what's Simon all about? And how did we get to where we are? Oh, I hate talking about myself, but um, in a nutshell, so did 30 years in the police service, Warwickshire a regional unit in bits and pieces. Um, during my career got into firearms, specialised in that area, became a national firearms instructor, held a number of portfolios, um, retired after 30 years, um, didn't know what to do uh, effectively. So um, my father (coughs) suggested I set up a a little company, um, applying some of my hard-earned experience and skills within the commercial world. I never even thought of it then. Um, So the transition from policeman to businessman, if you like, um, is has been a huge learning curve for me because it's just so totally different in some so many different ways. So I set up um, turret training, uh, which effectively uh, looks after uh, delivery of, of specialised uh, trauma, pre-hospital trauma care um, in the commercial sector, um, and also has another specialist wing around um, major incident, critical incident management uh, through gesture protocols and stuff like that. Right. So that's what what. My little company does with my team. Right, okay. Well, I'm going to take you back. So you joined Warwickshire Police in what year? Uh, uh, <laughs> 1989. 1989. <laughs> not, a bad, not a bad year. The uh, But things were different in the police service then, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. M- so, much um, different. It was just coming out of um, – uh, well, Pace had just recently been introduced, hadn't it? So yeah. um, there's a lot of um, – Change has died, and you know we used to parade with truncheons and uh, pocketbooks at six o'clock in the morning, and you know your sergeant would sign the, di- and then you go off to your accoutrements and your patrol location, and you'd walk the beat. Yeah, uh, and you used to wear a tunic. Um, um, so there's been a huge transition of change. So that's how it started. Yeah, I, I mean it's funny, isn't it? Because I joined just before that, and. We were coming out of the life on Mars era. You know, you, yeah. you you had all these people because if you look at it from a broad brush perspective, nineteen eighty nine, you would have been joining as somebody from nineteen fifty nine was just retiring. Yeah, yeah. So it that, was very much life on Mars. Yeah, it yeah. was, and they 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 didn't get the way that policing was going in the same way that I probably don't get how policing is going today. So if I walk through uh, the door, you know, I've been retired seven years. If I walk through the door today, I, I would be totally lost i suppose it's the same same ethos same sort of thoughts around it but where did you go for your basic training um so i went to Wrighton um police training college um which is now the college of policing one of the hubs here yes uh, in warwickshire so i was lucky enough not to um go to um uh, uh, Mar, which was a, a, a sat down south it was miles away yeah but, <clears throat> I went to um, Wrighton on Dunsmore in Warwickshire, so I was quite fortunate there. And I was there for uh, three months, um, so it was it was quite militaresque in its um, uh, approach. Lots of physical fitness and running, and um, 
evening parades, morning parades, um, showcase uniform, and you had your um, sergeant coming in inspecting your rooms with white gloves and stuff. So yeah. it was quite interesting. I mean, it was quite military-esque, so <clears throat> that's, yeah. But I think that set you out for the in the right way. I mean, I, I don't mean to be disparaging, but I watched a, a clip of 24 Hours in Custody the other day, and there's a, a young officer on there who had a full-on Mohican and looked like he was an extra from a, a Clash concert or exploited <laughs> concert. You know, and, and do you know what? I sound like my dad, and I say that on a regular basis, but if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. But I I want somebody that I can respect when they walk through the front yes. door. Yes, and I think I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said for that, isn't there? In terms of developing that sort of um, uh, internal discipline and yeah. a, a collective discipline around what we do, um, and yeah, there's been a lot of change, hasn't there? So you know, we, we, I don't know when you retired, they used to sit down around chairs and have a conversation and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which is okay, but. Is it or isn't it? I don't know, but it was. It's a bit weird. And there's certainly no working from home. <clears throat> no. Which which is happening on a on a regular basis now. So where where was your first posting? Where did you first go to? Um, I went to rugby. Um, so it was a okay. um, satellite station right in the middle of the county. Um, so I walked the beat for um, uh, three years. Uh, it should have been two, but it was just shy of three. Um, and um, learnt my trade craft there and then got um, – in those days, you used to get recommendations for driving courses and car That's courses, right. didn't you? So um, I was doing all right and I, I sorted myself out. So um, they gave me a recommendation for an area car course and that was in uh, 1992. Right. So that's where it went and I started getting into advanced driving and stuff. <clears throat> Did you stay at rugby until you went on the firearms team? God, no. Um, I actually tried to get onto uh, the farm's uh, early doors, but they told me I was too young and didn't have enough experience um, uh, and needed to um, perhaps, um, shall I say, reduce the passion uh, of what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know I know how that goes. I, 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 never, I never carried the gun because I never got rid of that. But, um, but yeah. So, um, so yeah, 1993, I moved off, um, <clears throat> got on to, uh, got my a recommendation for an advance ticket. And in those days, you didn't have um, um, uh, traffic local, et cetera. So you had to go off. Um, so I went on to um, a thing called a Southern Area Traffic, which was a bit of a hybrid between um, uh, the beat, as it was then, and then um, uh, response to major incidents and stuff on the motorways and, and various truncated road systems. And and because we had the bigger cars, we could tend to get to media responses fairly quickly. Uh, so, yeah, so that started my sort of process around uh, developing the career because I got the advanced ticket. So that was part of becoming a firearms officer is, is being able to drive the, the armed response vehicles. So that's how it went. So 1993 went on to the Southern Area Traffic Area. And then I think um, <laughs> I, I, apply, I applied for firearms, got through, failed the course, um, um, missed the shot, dropped it by one round, apparently. I mean, I thought it was a nine mil pencil, but there you go. Yeah. Um, um, but the following year I reapplied and got on. So 1998, that was the start of my illustrious career. <laughs> and what's, what's the training like? Because uh, people don't understand how much work goes into just the initial selection process because not everybody passes no no so um it, it's an inordinate amount of stuff so you have to step through quite a lot of um selection and recruitment criteria um there's a lot of uh, background checks a lot of assessments and, and referrals from your immediate supervisors and your um, immediate commanders on your divisional areas before you even get through to the process where you get into um, selection and recruitment. Um, so you've got to get through all those steps. Um, you've got to have a, a clean background, no uh, ongoing inquiries or anything else. Um, once you get through there, then um, there's a medical fitness, um, then there's either anything from a two to a five day selection process, um, depending on the home forces you're in. Um, and then that's all about, um, you know, the, the use of force, how you interpret it, your knowledge around that and how you act under 
uh, pressure and stress really yeah um, so that's that sort of pressure test and that's the two to five day selection criteria if you get through that and you're successful then you can go on to um well it's now 14 weeks wow. um in my time it used to be um uh, eight weeks and then you had another bolt on for two weeks with different types of weapons and stuff so it was 10 weeks in those days uh, but now it's a um a criteria of 14 weeks but over that period of time it's a continual assessment and you can uh, you can um fail at any point on that course it's quite pressurized and it's yeah. designed to be um so um you have to you have to pass um uh, a shoots uh, i think there's generally three shoots on a course and they are to a marksmanship level so you have to sh- hit uh, 90% at every t- every type of weapon uh, and then there's lots of tactics around how you apply them how you uh, interpret them after that then there's the medical side of things um etc cetera, etc cetera. it just goes on from there really so it's pretty intense yeah it is yeah i've got i've got a number of friends as you imagine who've, who've been through it and it's hard to digest the amount of work that goes into it and there's an irony because <laughs> You know, and I don't mean this in a disparaging or disrespectful way to my no. firearms colleagues, but they're the fittest people in the police service, yet they spend more time in the cars than yeah. than any. And then you've got yeah. then you've got the bobbies that are out and about chasing people around, and they make me look slim these days. <laughs> <laughs> it is weird, isn't it? It's a real yeah. juxtaposose. I, yeah. I get it. It's just nuts. Yeah, because um, the bleep test is was it eight seven for um, firearms officers. Um, yeah, it was. Um, I think it was eight six. Then it was nine four for armor response vehicles, and then I think it's ten point five um, for close protection onwards. Wow. Um, and then and then your your beat bobbies. I understand they're dropping it something like three point eight or something. Like that. You can just walk. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. could I could pass that with my eyes closed. So I, I don't know why they're changing the the goalposts there but they have uh, but what's really interesting is as a tail end of my sort of firearms career um there was sort of movement afoot to try and look at tailoring the fir- the fa- uh, fitness test and stuff and actually with all the things that have been going on nationally um they kept it and have actually enhanced it and there's there's a greater expectation for that level of fitness to Good. continue you know i mean even when i was i retired at 53 i was still passing the fitness test uh, 10.5 wow. that was an expectation so um uh, and and i've always found that those sort of people that are on it always want to do it because they volunteer for it so yeah. they, they naturally want to keep fit because they want to make sure that they can do what they can do and so, uh, and that's really interesting you, you say about the volunteer element because the, mm. the current climate around firearms officers my hat goes off to anybody that wants to carry a gun yeah anybody that is prepared <laughs> to face the level of scrutiny that they will face should there be any form of discharge of a weapon whether it's fatal or not yeah. The scrutiny is overwhelming. There's no other business in this country no. that faces that level of scrutiny. No. I, I, absolutely. And it, and it can go on for years, And as, as you and I know, and, and certainly some of our previous colleagues and current, currently serving have experienced this issue around continual uh, scrutiny. Uh, and, and I suppose there's that mental toughness as well that you need to, to uh, maintain that um, scrutiny so yeah it's it's phenomenal and actually i i've never found that replicated out in the commercial sector per se it's uh, it's quite interesting but yeah there's a hell of a lot um having been involved in certain things um these things can go on for a long time so uh, you do question yourself sometimes did you ever get called in because you, you went on to be the um uh firearms instructor lead firearms mm. instructor did you get called in to scrutinize other police forces once it'd been a- um Yes, uh, not actually called into them, but you would look at oversee some of the um, um, tac- uh, tactical firearms logs. So if you had a tac- tactical police firearms advisor give some advice to a, a, an incident or operation from another force, um, sometimes we would get exposed to what's your professional opinion, an expert opinion on this, and so you would you would have a look at that as well. So again, that's that's the level of scrutiny around. Um, yeah, the national decision-making model and stuff yeah. like that. And, I mean, people say, oh, well, it's, it's in-house scrutiny. But the fact is that they do have an ability to scrutinise themselves because yeah. because they will 
say it as they see it, and not not there's very rarely, and it does it does happen, and we've seen it in some forces, but very rarely is it without fear or favour. But what was the inspiration to become a firearms instructor? Because you're just loading even more pressure on yourself within the workplace. Um, I, I'd always been doing some training within the police service, um, and I just felt it was a natural progression. I, I, I was um, a, a self-defence OST instructor. Yeah. Yeah. And and I just thought, well, I I'm I I was told I was pretty good at doing this stuff, so I thought, well, I'm I'm I really enjoy the firearms and the tactics and stuff, and I thought, well, I, I got to a point where I was respected, and I thought, well, I'll give it a go um, because I really enjoyed it. And I thought I could just um, help make a difference, um, enhance the capability, um, and really make a, a, an impact on, on the team, I suppose. So that's where it went. And I went through the process, um, again, quite um, a challenging sort of um, selection process to become an NFI. Um, uh, so the rest is history, I suppose. They sent me off to, um, uh, where the bloody hell did they go? Um, uh, Blackpool. I went up to Lancashire. Oh, yeah, exactly. Six, seven weeks up there, and they basically took my brain out and reconstituted it and put it back in. Um, and then it, from then on, I was um, an NFI and started learning the trade. That's, that's a hell of a job, though, isn't it? I mean, like you say, the, the legislation that's wrapped around it, and when when um, if there is a you know weapons discharge, etc., mm. the scrutiny comes to you because you're the one who's delivered the the overall package, the overall training. Yeah. So yeah. if someone gets uh, shot, they'll be saying, oh, well, what, what happened as, as part of your training? And and it's quite intrusive. Well, it, it's hugely intrusive. You know, you've got to be um, open to um, that sort of um, scrutiny in your personal life, let alone your professional life. Um, and you've got to accept that that is part of the process. Um, um, there's a lot of stuff that you have to sacrifice. And, um, and I suppose uh, if, the reward is what you do, um, and that's how you get it back, I suppose. Um, but I mean, for me, my, I mean, involved in a number of major incidents. Um, but of course, running firearms ranges is extremely dangerous. Yeah. And we had we had four shootings, accidental discharges on on ranges. Um, so you can just imagine the scrutiny wow. whilst you as the range commanding officer, as I was an RCO, as it was called. Um, things go wrong um, uh, and has happened in the past and, and will continue to do so because you, you're using live ammunition. So That's not that's, that's not four within within Warwickshire, is it? That's four nationally. No, four within Warwickshire. Wow. But but these things happen because you have um, um, weapons malfunctions, yeah. uh, weapons handling malfunctions, um, you know, sometimes uh, ammunition will um, ricochet off parts of the range, which you'd never even thought that would do that, yeah. and they come flying back to you. So then uh, you have to start thinking about, right, okay, how safe is this and stuff? Yeah, so um, not only is the training testing and, and challenging, it also is quite dangerous as well. But then, you know, that's the job you're in. You, that's you, that's you, life, just, isn't it? That's how, that's how, that's how it goes. Yeah, of course it is. How many firearms officers do Warwickshire have, or did um, they have? Currently, um, it's a small force, but which punches, punches above its weight. So it's got about 30-odd, right. 32 at the moment. Um, and and the, the beauty of Warwickshire is that they are a dual role, a single solution capability. So they, they have a lot of skills portfolios um, uh, to do a lot of jobs, job roles. So, like, you'll, you'll, you'll have... Um, Operational farms commanders on the car. You'll have um, tactical advisors uh, available on the vehicles. Um, you'll have close protection officers. Um, so there's, there's a lot of um, multiple hatting, which is great because actually um, the skill set of the officers um, uh, really is enhanced and developed. So uh, yeah, there's, so there's a small team. Because you border onto the West Midlands, you've you've got the likes, yep. the NECs right yep. on the border. Yep. In fact, yep. is the NEC part of that in Warwickshire, or is it all? No, it's West Midlands. Um, but that was the beauty with Warwickshire. They, there was a lot of respect between the two forces because uh, West Midlands is obviously the second biggest, or was, yeah. firearm 
deployment team in the country. And we had a lot of um, operational exposure with them, with the various truncated road networks, M6, etc. So um, we did quite a lot of work with the West Mids, um, Vicky Verkey. So um, they respected us and appreciated that actually we were very, very competent at what we did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we, we have a, the regional area along with West Mercia, Staffordshire, um, Leicestershire and uh, West Mid. So we were pretty busy for a small force. Well, yeah, because you've, but, but the, the, the national infrastructure is such that with the strategic road links that go through yeah. Warwickshire, yeah. Tra- travelling criminals, they don't, yeah. look at, they don't look at boundaries. There are no boundaries in, uh, in their lives. Right. So, so they'll quite happily run a gun up from London into Birmingham and come through Warwickshire. Yeah, and they, they certainly did do that. Yeah. Hoppentry as well, hopping across. Yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. So there was a lot of um, exposure for our ARVs, and they became very, very good at what they were doing and still continue to this day because there was a lot of work to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, because the, the, the public don't realise how much work goes into the day-to-day policing, protecting them as members of the public. Yeah. How many qualifying shoots would an officer have to undertake in a year? Um, so it's a minimum of three. Uh, Warwick should do four currently, I, I'm led to believe. Um, so they they step above the standard, but it's a minimum of three. Well, shoots on the various weapons um, platforms that you do. So um, that can be anything from a, the generic um, a G36, which is the, the, the long carbine weapon, yep. the pistols, the Block 17, some other we- weapons are used. And there's the... Um, AEP, which is the rubber bullet one, um, it's like a, a big, like a big rubber bullet which they they, they designed over in Northern Ireland for, for uh, various things, and then you've got other things like um, different types of weapons platforms depending on the different roles you've got, um, and then there's um, the rifle officers. Um, they they are snipers, but then they're termed rifles. So they're no longer called snipers. Better terminology, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm still led to believe I'm not sure, but I think they are the only section in the role that is allowed to wear camouflage uh, equipment. Right, uh, buffalo, buffalo, <laughs> yeah. Us, yeah, and a hat, you know. and a, buff, <laughs> buffalo suits. Other yeah, other nice products class. are avo- available, I'm sure. It's, it is an interesting world. As I say, I've got a lot of mates. And I always remember, was it the Hatton gun where they'd blow the tyres off of a, you could blow the yeah. tyres off of a lorry? Yeah, I used to, yeah, that's right. Hatton and rounds. Different types of rounds. Yeah. So you had to trust, practice that as well. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. But of course, with that, there's always the potential of trauma, isn't there? There's always a potential of someone getting injured and shot. And, yeah. and so you have people trained up as medics within that. <clears throat> within that field. It used to be that if you had a live firearms job, you'd have an ambulance near or by. But, of course, I'm not sure how often that happens now. And you, But you do have specialised or specially trained officers who yeah. have got that almost um, battlefield me- medics. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, and that was that was the, the premise around um, firearms because... When you're in what is known as the hot zone, as you know, um, and for the people who don't, there's like that categories of hot, warm and cold. So if you're in the hot zone, there's nobody else you can go into that or that used to be a situation where it was only firearms officers because it was too dangerous. So you had your members of the public, criminal activity inside this area. And so you had to go and neutralise the threat, deal with it, contain it, and then deal with the aftermath of that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's come to the fore in the last... 10, 15 years, definitely. Um, but there was a, what is known as a, a, a care gap or a therapeutic vacuum, if you get into technical, uh, where if you had members of the public who were, were shot or stabbed um, and you had to go and rescue them, um, there was a period of time where there was a delay for the uh, the, uh, the grown-ups in green to attend yep. and um, the licensed professionals so we had to be trained to a certain level and a standard to, to administer pre-hospital trauma care on the roadside. And often that was in non, what is known as non-permissive suboptimal environments. So you had to be really, really switched on about how you delivered that type of stuff in such environments. Um, and what you will find is that the, the training curriculum is predicated um, to operating within hostile environments. 
And a lot of that knowledge has come from the UK Special Forces world. Yes. Um, and actually, I was involved with the College of Policing developing um, what is known as fast aid kits, so first aid and specialist trauma kit. Um, and we carry those as a number of forces in the country. I think it's 26 that carry these types of kits, these trauma kits, which are designed to look after um, your team uh, and then also members of the public or uh, people who have been injured as a consequence of criminality. And, and they're very high-end, very specialist um, pieces of equipment with lots of stuff inside. So, yeah, that level of trauma was, was exceptional. Uh, and I found that really interesting when I first started to learn it. And that's how that I got drawn into that. I held a portfolio on a regional perspective for it. And, and, and because the police have faced significant criticism where <clears throat> there's been an active shooter and yep. the ambulance service haven't been able to get in. So no. I, I suppose that, you know, the, the added level of responsibility around um, applying emergency aid, uh, that, that falls to the, to the blue, blue uniform. That's, that's the bottom line. In, in a nutshell, yeah, initially, um, there has been changes in the last um, six years uh, around legislation around the HEART teams, so there's the hazardous response teams right. for the ambulance service. And they, where they used to operate in warm zones, are now trained with police tactics, firearms tactics, they'll carry body armour and helmets. Uh, and there's an, there is a um, duty of care uh, and, a, uh, and an expectation that they will operate just on the back of the firearms teams in the hot zone. Um, having said that, um, certainly there's been stated cases in recent years uh, where that didn't actually happen. Um, and um, there's certainly one incident um, where uh, firearms officers had to drag a casualty um, around about 100 metres from, from point A to B to, to the um, point where the ambulance teams were. Right. So, uh, I'm not decrying that uh, at all because they do some exceptional work, but it's just that process around the Jessup uh, principles and the JOP, so that's the Joint Operating Principles, and and as a consequence of the Manchester Arena Inquiry and Westminster Bridge, Fishmonger, Burra Market, etc., these things are starting to be fine-tuned and they're starting to be more developed. Uh, but in essence, police firearms officers, they are at the front, they are at the sharp end, if you like, and the idea and expectation is that they will start to deliver trauma interventions, life-saving trauma interventions in, uh, under care, under fire circumstances, and which is something that never used to happen. No. You know, it, it, the pyramid changed, um, whereas before the idea was to go and contain and talk someone down. Now it's slightly different in, relage, in relation to Operation Plato responses to terrorist threats, um, uh, as, as was ably demonstrated on Westminster Bridge. Yeah, and every day is a school day, isn't it? Because actually, when mistakes are made, it's easy to criticise, but from those yeah. mistakes comes significant learning. It's when those yeah. mistakes are made again after they've had the learning, that's when the problem comes. But but we're fallible. Humans are fallible. And, we, you know, out of the 67, 68 million people that live in this country, there are only a handful of people that have ever been involved in a frontline terrorist incident where they've had to face a, a, an attacker with a weapon. Yeah, yeah. So really, we do remarkably well in this country for oh, yeah. our, our responses. And I, I have this argument with, um, I say argument, I have this discussion with my friends in the States who don't get why we don't readily car carry guns. Well, why yeah. don't you carry guns? Well, because we don't. Yeah, but you're all stabbing each other. Yeah, but if we carry guns, we'd all be shooting each other. So it's uh, – and, uh, yeah, I, I accept that, you know, knives are bad, and but you only have to look at the – the fact is the chances of you and I getting stabbed as we walk through Coventry are quite slim because we're not part of a gang. We've got – we don't – we don't – you know, the demographics, our age group, all those sorts of things, we are not at risk. We could get robbed. Of course we yeah. could. Because they think yeah. think we're old and vulnerable, but little do they know that they get a punch straight in the face. But um, <laughs> but 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 the fact is, the chances of us being the victims of a of a stabbing are quite slim. You watch, I'll go and yeah. get killed tonight. But um, but you're right though, statistically, yeah, that's true. But but if if somebody's carrying a gun and I'm out shopping in the local shopping centre and they decide that they want to be an active shooter, I've got as much chance of getting killed as the next person. So. It's absolutely right that we don't have we don't carry firearms readily in this country. Yeah, and we have those restrictions accordingly. Um, yeah, yeah, 
uh, uh, you know, and, and, and it's a robust system and it does work. And if you if you look at the comparison to Europe and, and the States, um, you know, we are way above that. And and still yet, in my opinion, despite all the, the negative press coverage and things that have been going on, um, I, I would still say that we, we are the finest police service in the, in the world. I agree. If not, um, uh, second to, I don't know, some of our... our European brethren, definitely. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think the Germans. I think all. I think the European policing model's pretty good, but yeah. I do think that for in the interest of fairness and inclusivity, we are we're right up there. And the police service today is the different difference to the police service that we joined in the eighties. Mm. Um, but it does it does do a remarkable job. Although I can criticise it, like everybody else, you know, I get yeah. I get fed up with it sometimes. But that. Yeah, it, it is, it's frustrating, you know, um, uh, and you do get annoyed with some of these people that uh, bring it into disrepute, and, oh. and you think, what on earth are you doing? And then you think about the dis- the, the selection criteria, and, you know, you had to be five foot ten when you first joined and yeah. do 30 press-ups and all this sort of stuff. But yeah. did that work? Well, probably it did, because you didn't hear about these stories recently, and you're thinking, oh, well, he's scratching here, Where, where's this going? But, but, the, the argument, but the argument is that we were all misogynists and racist. And it apparently could so, apparently yes. so, and it couldn't be further from the truth. I suppose if yeah. if by opening a door for one of my female colleagues makes me a misogynist, then I'm guilty. But that's yeah. that's as good as it got. You know, the, the, there was an expectation that everybody would work to the same standards. Were yeah. you ever involved in any incidents where there had been a discharge of a weapon? Uh, yes. And so, what was that like immediately after uh, the aftermath of that as a as a serving officer? What was that like? Um, there was always a, like a pregnant pause and you think, right, okay. Um, and then you just flick a switch and you go into that training. Um, um, and so you just do what you need to do. You secure the scene um, as an uh, operational firearms commander or a team leader. Um, you deal with what you've got to deal with and you secure the scene. And then you just go through the process. I think it's the the aftermath of it. When everything's settled down, it's you know, it's 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 um, it's the, the thinking about it, and then the the initial investigation and, and the accountability afterwards, and that's when it starts to go. Sure, because you, you've got you've got those three fights on you. You versus you. You go into a job, uh, a firearms incident, and you're thinking, right, okay. And you question your capability and your confidence, and then you get up and you rock through it, and then you've got your your subject or subjects and your people. So you deal with them, and then something goes wrong. And what I mean by goes wrong, uh, a, a, um, a firearm is discharged um, because ultimately, what we don't want to be doing is is, is shooting people um, and, and, unless they are terrorists that are causing real problems. And that's where it's changed in, yes. in terms of the period. So you do one and two, and then the third one is is you versus the system. Uh, and so the system then comes in. Um, and then it's it's an appropriate uh, issue of, of integrity and, and accountability, and so um, yeah, there's lots of stuff that, that is there to support you. I mean, you get your clothes taken off you, depending on the severity of the incident. Yeah, you know, your phone's taken and checked and everything. And you're thinking, right, okay, I better delete that. Or well, you can't, so it's all done. You know, yeah. and, and there's that scrutiny in terms of your personal life comes to the fore again, doesn't yeah. it? So, um, but you know that's that's part of the course, and and that's an expectation. It should be. It certainly was for me and my team and my guys. Um, so yeah, the IOPC they take primacy over um, a discharge weapon, and then it's passed back to the to the local professional standards if appropriate. Yes. What level of training do the investigators have in relation to? Firearms use. So, so IOPC, if they send an investigator out, has that person got knowledge of firearms or the That's a great question. tactical use? Um, certainly, in my illustrious career, um, I was only exposed to um, these people. <laughs> these people. I use that phrase. Wrong. No, They're not I, get, I get it. I get it. But, um, coming to um, have a an observation day to right. see what the tactics were and stuff. And and I, I understand it to a degree there needs to be that um, disconnect and they have to have that sort of position where they are independent totally. But the problem with that is then they don't necessarily understand some of the nuances around the tactics and stuff. 
And then there's a question to say, well, do they need to to carry out the investigation where they've got other experts which they can default to, like the PS Professional Standards Department? Yeah. Um, so um, they would come on observation days or afternoons. Um, I, I, they had a, a reasonable managerial expectation around what they what we do and what the expectations of the tactics were. Uh, and I think that if they were to seek, and they certainly did seek professional opinion, was from an outside force for the issues about problems and integrity. So, so it, it, was a, it was a good system. It was quite robust. And I think, I don't know if it's changed much now, but um, um, it, you know, the IOPC were, uh, are, are a, a process where they have to ensure there's accountability, and rightly so. Uh, yes, I, and I don't disagree. My only concern is that decisions are made over a six-month investigation where a, a firearms officer had a split second to decide whether or not the person that they were dealing with was yeah. leaning into their into their glove box and whether they had a torch in their hand or a 9 millimeter Glock. And, right. and that is, that's the thing that I find very frustrating around the way that firearms officers are dealt with. I totally agree with you. Um, and you, you see why um, the Metropolitan Police Specialist Units there were up in arms around it, literally. Yeah. Um, because there is that um, issue around, um, you know, they're, they're treated as um, uh, criminals as opposed to victims or a, a, a person of interest, if you like. Yeah. Um, and and there's a, there is a process in which that, that, that should take place. I think it's getting better. Um, I think because you know we volunteered for it, we don't necessarily expect that sort of um, treatment as such because we're not there to just to go and machine gun people to death. You know, no. it's just not like that at all. Um, but I, I certainly know from my time uh, there was a change. So when there was um, an incident, um, like a critical incident, um, there was an expectation that a duty statement was taken from you as a principal officer um, within a very short space of time. Yeah. Um, but over the last decade, it's there's a lot of uh, medical, uh, psychological assessing going on and evidence with white papers saying that actually um, you're probably better to get to leave that principal officer alone for a couple of days, go back to them and, and have a bit of a, a better conversation and take a statement there. And And so that's changed. And there's an expectation from the IOPC that they understand that now, where there's that sort of breathing space. Because a traumatic event, um, the brain acts in different ways, and basically what it tries to do is to suppress those those feelings. Um, and sometimes the, re the recounting of information is in different timelines. Yeah, it doesn't look right. So if you're writing a duty statement, and then it's there's different levels of timings and stuff. You then you're open to scrutiny about, well, are you lying here? Or why are you doing this? So actually, part of this process has been quite holistic in terms of looking after that. Um, so you give that principal officer the ability to take some soap time, get some um, support, and then uh, deliver that duty statement. In, in I think it's about 48 hours now. Um, so that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't know. Because at the end of the day, if you look at the, the, the event itself – it's like having a bottle that contains sand, stone, oil, and water, and for those thirty seconds, it's it's been it's all been shaken up, and it hasn't yeah. hasn't had the opportunity yeah. to settle. So you don't know where the different layers are, and once yeah. it's settled, life and events become a lot clearer. Yeah, and that seems to be lost on some members of the public. What do you think about the officers that that would happily hand back their their permits should so the, the, this incident's going on in London with is it yeah. Chris Caver at the moment? Um, yeah. I, I personally, I think that um, the decision maker abrogated their responsibility and decided to pass it on to a jury to make that decision because yes. they, were, they were scared of the fallout uh, if they came back with a, we're not going to prosecute this officer. I think that yeah. that's probably what's happened. The danger of that is. They had the power of the pen, and now they're going to um, empower twelve people who may have had a terrible life, you know, where they've had um, encountered the police, whatever, and all of a sudden they're going to have a, an unconscious bias towards finding a police officer guilty. Yeah, 
But how do you feel about the you know police officers that say, "Oh, we'll, we'll give back our permits"? Um, oh, that's a real tough question. Um, I, I think I think there's there's two schools. I I, I support it, but then I don't. Um, I support it because someone's got to make a stand around the way they're treated because they're volunteers. You've got to have that capability within the UK. And you can't mandate it, rightly so, because um, you know it's consent by yep. the public. And we need to um, appreciate that. That, um, and I think the public uh, need to appreciate that more about how and why and, and the, the ins and outs of what that is about. So, in one way, I think by handing in your weapons and your permits, um, it's it's a show to say, look, we're not being looked after very well. We're not in the business of going, you know, to to machine gun people. We are highly trained. Um, very, very professional individuals who take considerable responsibility around what we're doing. And this is not correct. So that should be listened to. The second point then is around um, protecting the public um, and the duty of care that we have as um, as individuals. You know, we, we took an oath. We didn't have, to, we didn't yeah. have a, a contract of employment that we signed, do we? No. You know, um, when we joined, we, we, we gave an oath to the Queen. Um, uh, which is why we're not allowed in a certain part of the Houses of Parliament, isn't it? Because we are we we are a crown servant. So there's an element there about well, you know what? That's just how it is, um, and you've just got to take it on the chin. Um, so it, there's two schools of thought. Uh, I, I think there needs to be more um, proactivity from the um, Police Federation of England and Wales, perhaps in terms of um, supporting the the AFOs. Um, in, in a more robust way. I don't think that's done. And I think if that was a little bit more uh, proactive, maybe the things would change. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't advocate handing in all the permits and leaving uh, the public to such a risk as that. Because uh, I know they were talking about bringing the military in, which is a wholly different game. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so, um, uh, but I, I suppose that's my answer, really. It's one or the other. Very, <laughs> very well answered. So, so I mean, you're you're absolutely right. The, the federation, and we're lucky here because um, one of the leads in the federation is Laura Heggie in Essex. Uh, she's brilliant. Yeah. She's a former firearms officer, so she knows that if anything were to happen. But I don't know whether, how that's replicated across the across the country. And I don't know. And I'd like, and I will ask. I think it's Mark Williams from the PFOA. I'd like to get yes, him on here, just Mark, yeah. um, because I think that. Whether there's enough linking between the PFOA and the Federation, I don't know. I think the, the Federation are all-knowing, and I don't think that they engage properly with other groups, and PFOA is, is, is one of them. I agree. And, you know, the PF, PFOA, you know, that was developed as a charitable foundation. Yeah. That's crazy. You yeah. know, we, we're, we're providing subscriptions on an on a annual basis. That's just nuts. It shouldn't be like that. No. And secondly, you know, from my experience, like you, but... The federation, either locally or regionally or nationally, didn't have enough teeth. It was it, sometimes it was just like um, they're comfortable. Like, yes, they're comfortable. Um, yeah. I, I, look, so, don't get me wrong. I was a, I was a, on the on the local board uh, on the inspectors yeah. board. And they did some great work. Yeah, they, great, yeah, but, but it is um, the problem is once once they're up there, what used to really rile me is when some of our um, federation leads, and I don't know how this works across the country. Would go out once a month with the chief constable and have a curry and pay for it on the subs of the of the federation. Yes. Or go on the train and get a nice first class ticket. Uh, how's that? That's that's tantamount to. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to say corruption, but it's it's not good practice. That's a conversation in a pub. <laughs> yeah, it is, and but but it was the yeah. truth. That was what was happening. You can only defame somebody. If you're not telling the truth, and that was the truth, there was money spent on travel, on meals, on on everything else, on the company card. I get it. If they go to a if they go to a hearing with an officer or they're supporting an officer and they buy a cup of tea, they shouldn't be expected to buy a cup of tea and a sandwich no. out of their own pocket. That's what yeah. you pay your subs for. But not to travel first class everywhere and you know hoi polloi it. But anyway, that's another story. But so we're we're now at the end of our service. Yeah. What did you do next, and how did you get to where you are today? Oh, well, that's a journey, to be honest. Um, um, 
very quick timeline. Um, um, left in 2019, retired. Um, if I'm honest, lost the plot. Didn't know what to do. Fell off the cliff face. Um, um, hence why my father suggests, look, you, you're lost. Um, so he suggested I, I create this this business. So uh, I got myself back together again after about six months. You know, I, unfortunately, the pub is just 147 paces away. <laughs> so that was my... That was my second home, which, you know, was totally unlike me because being on firearms, you know, alcohol and guns just don't mix. No. So I didn't really drink. Uh, but when I left, I just lost the plot a bit. Um, uh, so I, I got myself together, um, set this little company up, um, and my father was just advising me accordingly. And I, I, I joined um, the Security Institute, the SI, yeah. uh, um, um, as was then. Uh, in 2019, um, uh, Rick Malfield, do you know Rick? No. You heard of Rick Malfield? No. So Rick at the time was the uh, CEO, equivalent MD, and um, he was great because he was you know, talking to me about um, the transition. Um, so actually outside in the commercial world, there was a, something I never realised. There was that sort of support network, um, which I lost when I retired yeah. because there was nothing there. Uh, Narpo's Narpo, but you know it's Narpo, isn't it? So um, that was that. So yeah, set up the, the the little business, and you know it's it's gone from strength to strength. Really, I lost when COVID hit. I lost all my contracts. So oh. um, yeah, so that was a bit of a, a hit. But do you know what? It, the police service taught me you know, you know you're going to hit, so you get back up again. Resilience. So, Exactly. So, so I, I use that sort of experience, and and I'm here today um, having a great chat with you. And you know, I've I've converted the garage into a into an office, and I've got nice, good. contracts out in in the UAE. And I'm flying out next the end of this month. Nice. It also has pretty Gucci, but it's you know it's graft. Um, it's, so yeah. I'm doing all right. But people don't realise that wherever you travel in the world, there is an office that looks just like the office that you're sitting in. It might be sunny outside, but you've still got to work. <laughs> is Pete Lavery part of the Security Institute? Yes. Yeah, yeah no, I know Pete. Yeah. Well, Pete's a former military policeman. He is. Yeah. And he he's a, he was a Colchester-based military policeman, so I know I know Pete. Um, in fact, he's been to see my band a couple of times, I think. You've got a band? But, yeah, so I sing in a Scar band, and Pete's been to see me. Um yeah. We're called Scarmite, love us or hate us. But anyway, that's that's another story. So, what do you do? What, you know, what does Turret do? What what's the the overall emphasis around their their trade? So, um, it's basically most of the work is around um, um, the security industry and developing security officers to become security medics. Right. So the idea behind that is to um, uh, develop their their skill set. Um, in, empower them uh, to um, uh, help people within their um, deployed locus. The secondary uh, was lots of other add-ons to that, but based on my exp personal experience as a, as a firearms commander, when I've deployed, mate, can you take this med kit? I, well, well, I don't know what to do with it. Mm. So for me, if this was years ago, if this person had appropriate training with this type of equipment i could then offset that responsibility and go off and do other stuff yes so it's about developing that security officer with security medics um skill set um using my experience with regards to that and then adding to that um supplying uh medical equipment uh fast aid kits if they wanted that or giving them some advice around that and then also um uh, providing workshops, specialist workshops about um, major incident management relative to the medical world of that. So if you've got people who are injured, you know, what's the expectations of an ambulance team or uh, an ambulance crew uh, commander, etc. So it's teaching about that and it's fine-tuning that. So the idea is to enhance the skill set of that security world to augment the statute emergency services. But so where do the SIA sit with this? Because that's what you've done there, you've <coughs> demonstrated a very relevant and valid point because we've been talking about knife crime earlier on. Yes. And you look at the inner cities, what levels of training have security staff got in the middle of Birmingham where right. where they could, you know, 
Erdington, where there yeah. could there could well be a stab in the middle of Coventry, Colchester, yeah. wherever it may be. Right. These now you get these- yeah. These business yeah. in improvement districts, they call them bids, yeah. they must have a level of uh, social responsibility to get their yeah. security staff trained to a point where they can they can apply a patch. You know, to, if someone gets stabbed, yeah, they yes. can they can put a patch over the lung to stop it from you know blowing out yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but, but, but they what, don't. But they don't. And, 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 and it's, you know, you're getting into the real nuts and bolts of this, and I could talk and bore you to death for hours, but cut long story short, um, not all of the training, pre-hospital training courses are appropriate or role-specific, um, and a lot of the training is designed around event medical interventions right so you might have a first aid that's looking after an outdoor concert for instance well they're going to be working in a permissive environment and generic sort of first aid yes and and this is the issue around the types of of courses that are available commercially uh, which frustrates me because the vast majority of the the courses that are currently available have plagiarized what is known as the uh, d13 section of the national police violence training curriculum right and D13 was the fast aid trauma uh, skill set, which was written and designed and developed by the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, uh, Dr. John Hall, MBE, Professor Sir Keith Porter, and Andy Thurgood, to name but a few. And this was written about 20 odd years ago. So people have started to plagiarise that since, and, and they've made it more academic, uh, they've made it more event, etc., uh, etc. Et and for me, it's about educating the SIA to say, yeah, these are really good courses, but actually, if you look at the recommendation from Sir John Saunders, um, he is stating that um, you need to train security staff that have appropriate skill set that reflects what they might have to deal with, yep. like a Manchester, like a Westminster. And not only that, you need to give them the appropriate equipment to deal with it as well. Yes. But as an, as an example... That the armed response vehicles across the UK have been mandated to carry what is known as drop bags. These drop bags have a trauma uh, kit inside them, and they're designed to be dropped out for self-rescue for members of the public. Or what we could do is actually have security officers understand what's in the med- in these drop kits and actually augment the, the, the yeah. deployment. So, so. I do know that the SIA have been directed by this John Saunders um, to look urgently, quote, urgently at devising a a plan uh, and liaising with the College of Policing. And that forms part of um, volume two's uh, managed recommendations, to be fair. So, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a cynical so-and-so, and I, I've always thought of the, the SIA as being a quango who... You know, yes. people pay, and and you only have to look at the scandals recently where companies have been telling their subjects what um what to write as answers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. The problem I have, if if we have an active shooter, it's going to be in a school, or it's going to be in a, and it's unlikely to be a school in this country, but it's likely to be in a shopping centre. Iconic site. An iconic site where there will be security staff available. Yes. You can only hope that you've got a former member of the police or military who's got a modicum of sense when it comes down to, but they don't pay sufficient money to attract the right people half the time. So why load this responsibility unless you're going to reward them? Um, You know, if we had an active shooter at Blue Water or uh, Westfield or one of those, Mm -hmm. the police is totally on the bare bones of the police to deal with it and the, and, and the ambulance service. When, in fact, if you've got security members of staff that are trained in, um, you know, taking people to one side, dealing with any injuries, help, helping out and understanding what the police are going to do. Yes. You know, the police are coming through the door and, you know, they've got, got these yeah. weapons with This is what you expect. Get behind this counter. Go yeah. and, you know, yeah. get the people out of the way. Do whatever you... But they, there's no instruction around that. It's like, well, where are the toilets, mate? That's as good as it gets. And, and, and <clears throat> you're absolutely right. And this has been highlighted by John Saunders' inquiry. Um, I mean, it's been around for a long time, since 7-7, et cetera. But, you know, it's, it's the therapeutic vacuum. It's the, the narrowing the care capability gap. Yeah. Um, 
with lots of evidence uh, provided, it's very obvious that members of the public, some of them will run. Some of them will take heed of the advice, CTEL high, etc. Yeah. But there will be some that run towards it. And there'll be off-duty police officers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, who will go towards the danger. Yeah. So we need to accept that. And then um, some of the recommendations from 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 the uh, Sir John's inquiry was to educate the public, uh, go back to the schools and teach them appropriate first aid, not just generic, but stuff like that. So that's been ongoing. But I take on board what you're saying with the SIA, but they have been directed by Sir John Saunders' inquiry to look at it urgently, um, and it's around bringing in a skill set that is appropriate to manage these types of incidents should that happen again. And it will do. Of course it will. Time. Of course it will. And, and so not only just train them, but also give them the equipment to deal with it. And you're quite right about, um, um, you know, we expect them, it's got to be a voluntary thing, you know, because they're not going to get paid £50 an hour to, to do this. No. It, 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 it's, it's somebody who wants to do something um, and if we if they do volunteer, then we give them the appropriate skills and training and qualifications. Um, and you know what? I'm involved with a client at the moment who um, oversees Battersea Power Station, for example. Yep. Iconic site. Do you know what? They're training. They've brought me in to do the training, and it's phenomenal. The support yeah. that, that they, they do, um, the development of that, you know, they're starting to look at stretchers because the recommendations are from the SIA, um, from the St. John's. And so there's a lot of innovation within the community the security sector to really take this forward. But the SIA, um, I don't know what they're doing at the moment. They've been told about this last year. So um, hopefully they will um, look at this urgently and, and, and start to develop some sort of response to it. Yeah, only only time will tell me. The uh, It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you and, and I've, I've really enjoyed our, our chat. Uh, but I give everybody this opportunity before I conclude any interviews. Is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct in relation to the statement that you've made today? <laughs> See, I told you, didn't I? <laughs> uh, probably loads. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, 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 I can. Know how editing goes, so there you go. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I can. I, I can see that. Um, in the long term, there'll be opportunities where I'll be calling you up and saying, what do you think about this? And we'll have a, yep. have a 10 minute chinwag around that. But I take that, that that's a no comment and. Uh... It's fine, mate. Yeah, crack on. Love it. <laughs> Having the opportunity to, to chat with you and engage is just wonderful. And, you know, for me, if it gets gets the word out to, to lots of people about medical training and then, yeah, great. It saves lives at the end of the day, so fantastic. Absolutely. Um, and, and hopefully we can catch up and have a beer in the city at some stage. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, yeah, when you're, when you're down there or I come up to the um, the Two-Tone Cafe. Two-Tone Cafe. Yeah, we've got to do that. Yeah, mate. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll include all of your links, if you can let me have them. I'll include all your links in the body of the text so that okay. the public can um, can find it, you know, business people, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I'll send you the link to our services site, which is free of charge. And you can join X-Job Services for nothing um, just to promote your business within the, the wider hell. field. Okay. All right. So that's, yeah, that's lovely. That's and, what and we do. That's really great then. Um, there's obviously a few people who are starting to retire uh, this year, I'll link them in to you. Yeah, perfect. I mean, we so we, we, we do the recruitment and we do the – we've got a services site as well, uh, which is a repository for nice people, former police and military, uh, people with their independent businesses like you that don't get the, the exposure. And people come to our central repository and they'll say, yeah, we're running an event or we need a trainer and they'll have a selection of people that they can choose from and um, they'll go through the process and – you know, the best person wins. So, um, but yeah, all right. So we'll, we'll do all that. But listen, I've had an absolute ball talking to you. I've had a laugh. Likewise, uh, the, yes. te the technical hitches we can overcome. And we did, yeah. Uh, keep safe, keep busy, and um, I hope it goes well for you overseas. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate the, the support, the time, uh, meeting you. Um, I can't wait to get together and have a sh shoot the shit about um, some music over a beer. Uh, it'll be brilliant. So uh, yeah, uh, long may it continue. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah, keep it, keep in touch, mate, and I'll speak to you very awesome. soon. All right, keep safe, mate. Have a nice weekend. God bless you. Take care. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.